Hello and welcome to The Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we are joined by special guest Adam Davidson. Adam has been an economics reporter for NPR, The New York Times, and The New Yorker. He's the CEO of podcast production company Three Uncanny Four and the author of The Passion Economy. Adam, welcome to the show. Great to be on. I'm excited. Yes, welcome. So the backstory here is that a reader, um, someone from my daily mailing list, was reading your book, The Passion Economy, and she wrote in to tell me that, Jonathan, you have to read this book. You're going to love it. There's a, a section, I think it was chapter three, she was talking about where, uh, you know, she told the story of the brush company, which was just fabulous. And, you know, niching down and getting really specific into um, their passion. So uh, I reached out to Adam and he graciously agreed to join us for an interview. Yeah, I feel like you guys, we have a very similar message. I'm excited to be on. I, there were points in the book where I was like, sweet, now I don't have to write this. <laughs> <laughs> so can we, I think a, a fun place to start would be, how do you define the term passion in the context of the book? Because I get a lot of, not I shouldn't say a lot, but it's not uncommon for me to get pushback when I use that word with people. You know, they say, you know, oh, what, where should I niche down or how should I position myself? And I'd say, well, what's, what are you passionate about? Some people have a... Um, sort of a negative connotation associated with that, I think from the startup space where everybody wants you to work for nothing because it's your passion. But but that's not really how you're, It's that's taking it the wrong way, I think. I'm curious how you define it in the context of your book. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I think that you know, the word passion, I got into studying its history because it's. I started being fascinated by the word itself and how different people, it takes different meaning. Um, and it made me more excited to use the word, but then also a little cautious about about the word. So it it, it comes out of you know the passion of the Christ, the the suffering um, of Jesus on the cross. Um, it had a kind of odd history through Latin and then the Romance languages and English, um, and at various points meant suffering, and then eventually meant any intense feeling, good or bad, and then also came to mean um, a positive, uh, intense feeling. I kind of love all of that because I think um, that if you're going to make a business around that isn't... The core idea here to me is that your value in the world is going to come from you, not from some external source. You're not going to just go to a graduate school program to become a lawyer or an MBA, and then have a boss who tells you what to do. You might do all those things, but but the value is not going to be externally defined. That that for much of the 20th century, um, value was externally defined by by bosses, by corporate hierarchies, by predetermined career paths. Um, but I don't think that means it's always happy, fun, easy. This is not about like, hey, I love puppets. I'm going to become a puppeteer and somehow I'll make a million bucks. Um, you have to bring rigor to it. You have to bring discipline. You have to work really hard. Honestly, a lot of it can be less easy because when you're doing something you really care about, it's going to be maybe even harder than doing a job that someone else told you to do. So there will, you know, I, I sometimes say to people who want to be entrepreneurs, what do you want to be worried about at three in the morning? Because you're going to be worried at three in the morning <laughs> if you're an entrepreneur. That's, okay. um, That's funny. But do you want it to be like, I feel like I have now finally structured my career so that I was up actually yesterday at three in the morning worried about something, but it was a good something. It was something that really matters to me that I really care about. It wasn't, oh, my boss is going to be mad at me because I didn't do this or that, you know. So, so the passion word really should convey, I'm going to put me and the wholeness of me into the way I make a living. It's a strong choice. It's not a trivial choice. And it possibly isn't for everyone. Although in my view, the economy's structure has changed in such a way that you kind of have to do some version of it, uh, most likely, because it's going to be really hard to succeed in an externally defined metrics. Mm. So th that's great. Thank you. The the let's. I want to shift a little bit into the word economy now, and uh, maybe you could tell a little bit, uh, just in summary, the t the story of the two Stanleys and how they kind of come from, like they kind of straddle 
a shift from one economy to another economy and I you know and it seems like we're we're shifting into a new one the passion economy could you uh share that story yeah absolutely it's a story about my dad and my grandfather and just to go back a touch something that is really crucial for me and sort of how I came to think the way I think is understanding that yes we're all individuals and we um have a lot of control over our destinies, but we also live in an economic context and, and economic contexts change over time. I mean, that might be a trivial point, but um, but but it's also a crucial point. And, and I was trying to get at this idea. And my wife actually said to me, you know, your dad and your grandfather really embody what you're talking about. They live. So my grandfather, Stanley Jack Davidson Sr., who was born in Providence, Rhode Island, um, oh, where you are, yeah. um, although grew up in Worcester, Mass. Um, I've also lived there. <laughs> oh, good, yeah. <laughs> um, he, he was born in 1917, and I think of him as just the model 20th century man. Um, he lived until he was 99, fairly healthy till the last few years, and you could still have a good conversation with him at 99. Um, and big, tall, really good looking, looked like Superman, strong. And, you know, he was born in 1917 to a very poor family. His father died when he was only five. Um, his mother cleaned house. Um, he, he grew up with very little means, but enormous ambition. Um, he found himself uh, preg with, with a pregnant girlfriend and soon wife um, when he was 17. So in uh, 19... 1936, they had my dad, the, these two kids in Worcester, Mass, in the middle of the Depression. And Stanley Sr. did what a man does. He went to work at a machine tools factory that made the grinding machines that make ball bearings. And if you can imagine a 1936 grinding factory, I mean, this was big men in blue overalls, oil and fine metal dust in the air, brutal, tough work. As, as he would tell you, you can't win a world war without ball bearings. So when the U.S. machinery geared up for World War II, to, uh, frankly, to his shame, he didn't go overseas to fight. He was told he had to stay and make ball bearings and, and work two shifts a day. And his entire career, he had one of those 20th century careers where he worked at one, fact, one company his entire life, eventually became a factory foreman and um, did quite well for himself. But I can't imagine there was half a second in his entire life where he wondered, what is my personal passion and how can I manifest <laughs> that through my career? Um, the very idea, of course, would have been absurd. I mean, he's a man, he gets a job, he does the job and he pays for food and shelter for his family. And he did that very, very well. For a blue collar guy who only had a high school degree, he ended up, he had three nice homes. He had a beautiful home in Cincinnati. His factory had moved there um, in South Carolina and then in, in Norway where his second wife was from. And he, he really lived the American dream. He came up from misery and poverty to being a fairly well-off man, all because he used his big, strong hands to make things. Um, so in 1936, my dad, Stanley Jr., who's always gone by Jack, was born. And you couldn't ask for a worse pairing of my poor dad and his poor dad. I mean, they just never understood each other. Um, my dad from a very early age was just a creative, impish, fun loving guy. He still is at 84. And eventually my dad found his way as an actor. Um, and, and that's what he's been doing his, his, his my entire life. But in the context of his blue collar Worcester mass childhood, there was no place for a guy like my dad. There was no place for somebody who wanted to explore their own personal nature, who was interested in art and performance. And it was absurd. And his father never embraced my dad's career. It was, you know, I, I think my dad could have just as easily told his dad, I'm going to be a butterfly or I'm going to be a rainbow. And it was actually, I think, me becoming a business journalist where I was able to talk 
to my grandfather about the stuff he cared about and a little bit bridge a gap. So they were able to have something of a relationship. But the, the point I make in the book is I think those two Stanleys, Stanley Sr. and Stanley Jr., were right when they faced this stark choice. Stanley Sr., my grandfather, really did have a choice. He could live his own passion and dreams and be broke, or he could be a provider and find a job that he didn't necessarily care about. And I don't know that he had much other option as a poor kid in a blue collar town. That was what the econ- how the economy was structured. And my dad also made a choice. He, he, my childhood wasn't terrible, but we never had much money. We never, um, we, we were, you know, I would say lower middle class and with a very volatile income because, you know, actors are sort of project by project. Um, my dad's never had a job longer than six months. And I think there was one job that was six months. Most of them were a lot less than that. And they were both right that passion meant some degree of financial insecurity. And for my dad, it meant really living outside of the mainstream. So my childhood, I grew up in Greenwich Village, New York, in all artist housing. And we really, I was raised to understand that we lived in a, in a different part of the culture than most people. I didn't know parents who had jobs. I didn't know people who wore ties to go to work. That was all stuff I learned about when I, in my twenties, I didn't, I just didn't experience that world. I didn't know people who had steady paychecks. I didn't know any of that. And, and, and I knew people who took great pride in living a passionate life, even if it meant living a precarious life financially. But to my great joy, <laughs> um, I think I, their grandson and son and, 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 and our, and our listeners have now live in an economy where you don't have to make that same choice. You get to do both that you don't, you can make a financially sound decision that is also a lucrative decision. And as I said earlier, I think for more and more of us, it's not that you can, you have to, that is what this economy demands. That's so good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, okay. So let's just pick up from there. So I, I want to maybe, the next piece of the thread to pull is commoditization versus niching down and and making it a little bit more concrete what you mean when you say it demands that you you know follow your passion or find your passion and use that to and find out figure a way to fund it is usually the way we talk about it so like you're passionate about a mission like how you're going to fund the mission so you can keep coming back every day to further the cause yeah so so i Part of me wanted to name the book, not the passion economy, but the matching economy, but that just didn't sort of work. And I think my wife thought that maybe it would seem like a book about dating sites or something. Um, <laughs> although I guess passion could as well, right? So, um, so. Um, so, but I think it is really helpful to have in your head matching a buyer and a seller, a provider of a good or service and the person who consumes it and and what goes on in that. And, and I, I'm assuming we'll get to pricing pretty quickly, but let's just talk about just those two finding each other, buyers and sellers. This is true whether you make chocolate bars or fighter planes, or you're a provider of accounting or services, or you're a cons- marketing consultant, whatever it is, you're, you're, you're doing something or making something and someone is or isn't buying it. So if you think in rough terms, before the modern world, let's say through the Civil War, um, and for all of human history, almost all of that buying and selling was happening in a very intimate context. You were, first of all, most of your material goods were made at home. There was a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of high luxury goods that traveled along long distances. But if you were buying bread and shoes and a farm animal and a house, you were buying it from a neighbor and probably your grandparents bought it from their grandparents. It was a deeply contextual context. And then you have the second industrial revolution starting in the decade or two after the civil war. Um, And think of ivory soap, which some people consider the first real branded mass produced good. Suddenly you have this company in Cincinnati selling this product to people all over the world. That's a cheap product, not a, luxury, not a spice or a special perfume, but just a cheap everyday product. And this is a new thing. People aren't used to buying everyday things from strangers who live in another city. 
And they had to solve a ton of problems to make that matching work between the seller, Procter & Gamble, and the buyers. They had to come up with branding, and they're really seen as the inventors of branding. They had to come up with mass production so they could make enough of this stuff cheaply enough that it was worth it to ship it all over you know, first the country, then the world. They had to come up with supply chain and logistics and all of this stuff. And and I think the, the 20th century economy really was that mass production economy. If you look at the amazing productivity gains that transformed America and a good chunk of the world from impoverished peasants to upper, you know, to middle-class society of, of, of thought workers, it was mass production. And mass production is really requires making the same thing over and over again, cheaper and cheaper, faster and faster, selling it to more and more people. It's focused on discipline, on um, on uh, removing variability, you know, Six Sigma and all that. And, you know, eventually making sure if you eat a Big Mac in Tokyo and in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and in Brooklyn, New York, it tastes exactly the same. And that created corporate cultures. Corporations were a new thing too, large corporations. And so I need that McDonald's person or that general electric accountant or whatever to follow standardized procedures. And that really worked a miracle. I mean, I'd say the economic growth from 1880 to 1980, even with the depression, even with the wars, is the greatest improvement of the human condition ever in history. It was a miracle. But it was a miracle that ran out and came at a cost, which was to get on that train there was a tiny number of people who were able to become the drivers of that train, the John Rockefellers or Alfred P. Sloan's or whoever. Um, but, and then there were people like my dad, people living on the margins of society. And then there were, you know, occasionally brilliant entrepreneurs, Steve Jobs, whoever. But for the most part, the core work for a person or a product or a service was to commodify it, to make it look like it has exactly the same value as everything else just like it. And then the battles over price. How do I get my costs low enough that I can take the same price as my competitor and, and make more money than my competitor? And that economy still exists. There are still massive scale economies. There's still mass commodities. The difference is they don't need us. If Procter & Gamble wanted to get rich, if Healed Machine Company, where my grandfather worked, wanted to get rich, if Ford wanted to get rich, they needed to make a lot of other people at least well or better off. They had to hire a lot of people, a lot of factory workers, a lot of accountants, a lot of um, office workers, and they had to pay them a reasonable amount to keep them there. They don't have to do that. Mark Zuckerberg doesn't need to make that many people rich for him to be rich. The Snapchat guys don't need to make a lot of people rich to make themselves really, really rich. So that scale economy and that commodity economy still exists. In some ways, it's stronger than ever. It's just a much, much, much worse deal for the rest of us. And so that's why the rest of us have to use the tools of scale, use the tools of digital communication, of a user-friendly new supply chain to find our intimate group, to find our tiny village, even if they're thinly spread all over the world. That is my core belief. And, and that means not saying, oh, I'm Jonathan Stark. I'm just like everyone else. I charge you know, $230 an hour. I know that other guy charges $180 an hour. Let me explain why I'm a little bit more. <laughs> Where you're really just comparing drawing. yourself, yes. <laughs> Instead, you want to do exactly the opposite of what our schools, our corporations, our career plats told us. You don't want to be the same. You want to be, you want to say, I do this one thing and I do it really well. And 99% of people have zero use for it, but there are people who will love it. So it's not, how do I get ivory soap in everyone's hand? It's how do I get Adam's soap in 10,000 people's hands, but the 10,000 people who love it like crazy and are willing to pay a fair price for it and help me create a sustainable business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, it reminds me of a story the other day I was chatting with someone who 
sells her services on Upwork. And she's a very, very unique kind of freelancer. Her skill set is one that I've never heard of before, working with people who sell on Amazon. And, uh, and she was like, what should I do? And I was like, well, get off of Upwork and start getting your own customers. You know, maybe that's a transition or maybe it's not. But when you go to Upwork, I assume you know what that is. Yeah. Um, when you go to Upwork, it's just sort by price. And, and there's no, you know, there are other differentiators on there, but you know, star, everybody's got like four and a half, five stars and they all basically look the same except for the price. Exactly. Right. And I was like, you need to get off there. And she's like, well, I I don't know how I, I you know, she didn't, she wasn't prepared to do that. So I was like, I was like, well, then you need to set your price the highest, be the highest one. That's the only hope. I completely agree. Yeah. I I was like, right. I was like, find the highest one. And then be $50 more an hour and people are the right people are going to be like, Hmm, there must be something special about her because it's, it's the only, it's the only real marketing signal she can send on that platform. The other, exactly. and the, yeah. the alternative would be to, you know, goof around in the middle somewhere and then just, ugh, you know, but you want to find those people who are looking for the best of whatever it is that you, I, I almost don't want to finish the sentence. You want to look in her case, she wants to work with the clients who want the best of that thing. And she, she's good at it. It's not like she's, you know, lying. She, she's uh, good enough to do a good job. And that's the only marketing signal she can send, you know, ideally though. And I, you know, the, you talk about this a lot in the book and we're kind of getting there now. Ideally the people won't even be looking for a general type of whatever it is that you do. They'll be looking for you. Like, there's, it's almost like uh, if you get niched down enough, you don't really have any competition. The people who want to work with you aren't even looking at alternatives. Exactly. And that is, that's what I would say is I don't know that Upwork is ever going to work. Um, it's possible, you know, you, you have some cash flow issues and it can, you know, cover your nut for a few months while you're building an, um, a niche business. But yeah, if you're, 10-year plan is to just get better and better at being at a commoditizing platform, um, then that's a bad plan. So, and, and I think there is a universe of marketplaces. So if we think of Upwork or Etsy or uh, Uber or, you know, the, these marketplaces where people present themselves or their products for sale, you can tell in a glance if they're commoditizing platforms or non-commoditizing platforms. In fact, the non-commoditizing ones sometimes don't even really look like platforms. Um, so for example, I'm pretty much against Etsy as a search tool. Cause if you there, I happen to love stationery. <laughs> I, I've spent a ridiculous amount of money on like really nice paper and pens. But if I just search through Etsy for paper and pens, it's, it's a mess and it's going to end up, you know, undifferentiated mass and it's going to sort by price. But if I, but if somebody is creating a business and they're just using Etsy as a platform, but they're reaching me and other customers through other means, okay, fine, I'll allow it. <laughs> but, but, um, but you really don't, the question, you want someone ideally eventually, not just to come to you, but to be like talking to their friends and saying, oh, we need an Adam Davidson kind of person on this project. You want to become the brand for your micro niche. So, Selling on Amazon is a pretty broad thing. I would spend a fair bit of time. Well, who am I best at? Who have I helped the most? What products do they sell or what size are they or what stage of their business are they? Really figure out who who am I clicking with really powerfully and who's really responding to me and just continuously refine that and figure out how to get in that world because are those people on other websites? Are they, do they have discussion groups? Are they tweeting at each other? Like, is there a way to get those people just knowing that, oh yeah, that's the person who does it for us. Yeah. Classic, like big fish in a small pond. Yeah. Jason Blummer, who's a hero of my book, who's a accountant who is very like-minded to all of us. You know, he says, you could, you can never niche too narrowly. You can niche too quickly. So, you know, yeah, you could, that was a good yeah, point. Yeah. Yeah. But, so, you know, I, yeah. I wonder if maybe that would be a good lead in. One of the things I loved in your book was the story about Megan Phillips. And um, I think it was called, was it the Honey Agency? Yeah. 
And there was this interaction with her and Jason, but I, I was fascinated with the journey she made from having this agency where she and her partner were working a ridiculous amount of hours and really making no money once they figured out, you know, what, what the books were really telling them. And then this, this transition to a passion economy business. Could, could you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. And I, I assume this is like, two thirds of your listeners. So this will resonate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So Megan was uh, Megan. I think she said. So oh, is it Megan? I think so. Um, I, I like her a lot. I'm, I consider her a friend actually, but I just forget that one thing. So um, she, she's a natural born marketer. She's really smart. She's really creative. She's also just lovely. Like you meet her and you just want to work with her. And she did have a passion for wine. She grew up um, in Sonoma County. She grew up surrounded by wine growers and vineyards and, and has deep knowledge about wine. And she opened up a marketing agency and did the thing that people who open up professional services firms do. She took every single job she could. And she, the very idea of saying no to a client, a potential client of losing a potential client was absolutely terrifying. And, um, and so she, every RFP that came out, she was in there pitching. She was um, taking on every job she could and she tells the story of this one client who came to her because he wanted a new logo. He <laughs> had a business selling furniture. He had a retail shop and he also sold wholesale. And while she's designing his logo, she's thinking, you don't have a logo problem. You have a business problem. You don't know what you are. Like These are two very different businesses with two de very different strategies, retail and wholesale, and you're just taking the worst of both. You're, you're, this is a disaster. And, but he didn't want to hear that. He wanted a logo. And, and then she's like, I don't even care about furniture. <laughs> like, that's not my thing. And it, it, it provoked a crisis, but she couldn't put her finger on the crisis. And then she hired Jason Blumberg. Jason came out for um, like a, a long two or three day um, retreat with her and her co-founder. I've done this with Jason. I've hired Jason and it's awesome. And um, very quickly, Jason was able to show her that she was losing money. It's a weird thing, but I bet a bunch of your listeners are in this position too. You have revenue coming in, you're paying staff, you're somehow, you have an office and computers. It feels like a profitable business. But and you're telling yourself, well, yeah, I'll I'll take in money eventually. I just right now I gotta I can't pay myself much. But you're actually you're not building up an asset value. You're not building a business that you could sell, and you're not really on path. It's like the more work you do, the less the farther you are from taking on um, income. So Jason was gently brutal, which is a strength of his. You know, he's brutal and you love it. Um, and and. Um, guided her to understand, first off, a third of your customers, something like that, are costing you money. And that's a crazy thing for professional service people to take in, but it's crucial. If you, if you really assess your customer base and you look at how much work goes into those customers who don't really get what you're doing, they're always complaining, every project that should take three hours takes three days. There's just a constant wasted emails and phone calls and Zoom calls about um, trying to re-explain to them the thing you explained two weeks ago. Like if you actually add up the time and how much you're making, you'd be way better off doing new customer development or or just sleeping or, you know. Yeah, just, working at just Starbucks. Working at Starbucks. So, so that's first pass, get rid of all those people. But then second pass is, okay, what's our unique value proposition? Because your value proposition can't be anything marketing related will do because that's instantly <laughs> in a commodity conversation. Full so, service agency. Ugh. Yeah. And she realized something through Jason that a lot of professional service folks come to realize, I think, which is it's the stuff you're thinking about when you're doing the pitch that is often the most valuable that you you're looking at this company, you're sizing them up, you're taking in what they're asking, and then you're really coming up with a big strategic vision because, and we can talk about this, the stupid model of 
pricing by hour, you actually make money by doing the rote stuff that lots of other people can do. But the value you're adding is often front-loaded in that pitch. So how do you value that? And so what she does now is she really zeroes in on it's wine and then broadly food and beverage. And not just that group, it's sort of you know, the 15 to $30 bottle of wine, the kind of not super elite, but not commodity wine. It's a decent wine that people might love um, and crafting a really strong story around that wine, that winemaker, et cetera. She has a really specific vision of, of the kind of customer she's going to focus on. But then also she's putting into the pitch, I'm not just delivering a logo and some business cards. Like we're going to go through a thorough process of figuring out who you are and how we're going to communicate that. Um, and, and so she's, she's able to give a name to the real value she's adding. Lots of people can give you a logo. You could go on 99 designs or whatever, get a logo by, you know, this evening. Um, that's probably perfectly fine, but it's that much more rigorous process. That's truly valuable. Now, most people don't want a rigorous process. You know, most people want the logo. So don't, Work with most people right. <laughs> yes, they know. who want to work with you the way you are good at working. So she found what everyone I've met who's gone through a process like this has found. She has far fewer customers. She's sleeping more. She's Her days are much calmer. And she's making so much more money. Right. Profits. Right. Profits so and actual yeah. money. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, it, there's something that uh, I don't know if it was she or Jason said, but they said something about that price should be a bit shocking, right? Where your client has this uncomfortable moment where he truly has, has to ask himself if this is worth the investment. Yes. And that's like Jason really taught me that I now have deeply ingrained, which is price. I, I think the 20th century model and the model far too many small business people use is like, okay, it costs me this much. And here's what my competitors are charging. So I'm going to try and like, I want to charge a little more than I have to pay. And then either the same or a little less than my competitors. That's an entirely external conversation that price really should reflect a, a dialogue between you and your customer. That customer is getting unique value from you. If they're not they shouldn't be working with you. You shouldn't be working with them. What is that value? Now, I'm not saying it can be completely unmoored from competitive realities, but it should be largely unmoored. It should be really about that relationship. When I signed up Jason as my accountant, I went from paying 1200 a year to over 30000 a year, and I was happy to do it. It was worth it because Jason had articulated how much value he was providing, and it was transformative value. So that's the kind of conversation you want to have is, and it, it should, so Jason has all these pricing exercises that I love. One of them, which you could do as a thought experiment, or you can actually just do, but think about what if I doubled my prices tomorrow, what would happen? That probably for most people will provoke a crisis. Well, I'd lose all my customers. Would you, how many would you lose? Would you really lose all of them? And let's say you would lose all of them. Why? What, what do they think about you now that they would need to think differently? Because um, the truth is, you could double your prices. You might have to better articulate what you provide. You might have to more refine what you provide. Maybe you'll find out you're, you're just not good enough yet. You have to go back to school. You have to get more skills and more training. Um, maybe you find out, yeah, we are that good, but we're that good for a third of my customers. So I need to acquire new customers. But Going through that exercise of shocking yourself can <laughs> can provoke a, a it, it kind of forces up all the problems you need to address in your own business. Is it a true you're not adding that much value? Okay, well that's that's something you really should think about. Is it that you are adding that much value but you're not good at explaining it to your potential customers? Well, that's something you should think about. So, I love seeing prices like. It, 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 it's a tool, it's a playful tool, it's, a, um, it, it, it's both a signal of value, like you were saying, charge the most, um, and, and, and it's a reflection of the health of a relationship. I mean, price really is, at the end of the day, that's what we're doing. We're doing stuff, and then the price determines how valuable it is to the people we're doing it for. So we either have to do different stuff or do the same stuff for different people 
you know, and the price will tell us that. That always reminds me of the, the old joke. Uh, I told my barber, you should double his prices. And he said, double my prices. I'd lose half my clients. Right. But, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's, that's a perfect segue into um, the conversation that probably uh, the smartest thing I ever heard, the most mind blowing thing I ever heard uh, our mutual friend, Ron Baker say was that price drives cost, not the other way around. Do you want to yeah. kind of drill into that? Because I think that that is a shocking revelation for people. Once they really wrap their heads around that, it changes everything. It is a really like subtly profound lesson that really shook me as well. And um, and I talk about it in my book when I learned it from Ron. Um, so and in a way, you can get your head there. Like if we're starting a hotel and we have a conversation um you know, are we going for a super five-star luxury hotel or are we going for like a commodity bed and breakfast, commodity hotel or an intimate bed and breakfast hotel? Um, you can get, you can kind of get the mental model of the kind of business you're doing is going to determine what expenses you're willing to take on, what the costs are going to be, et cetera. Um, but I think we can see that in other businesses, but looking at it internally. So let's take professional services because I think we think in terms of, okay, hourly billing, how much is my time worth? We probably have a sense of what the very best in our business charge and, and don't quite feel like we can justify that, et cetera. But this is locked into a 20th century model where you're supposed to be, you know, have upwards of 70% of your working hours be billable. Um, so your billable rate should be you know, enough that in 70% of your billable hours, you can make a decent salary. <laughs> but, but imagine a relationship. So take Megan Phillips. She's, she, you want her to spend the time thinking about your strategic needs and not just designing a logo. If, if things are structured in such a way where her hourly rate allows her to design your logo and just kind of in a hurried, dashed off way, um, think about your strategy, then she's going to spend a lot of time on your logo and not a lot of time on the real value adding stuff. So you want her hourly rate actually to be higher because she's going to provide more value. But here's the even deeper thing, Megan or er, Megan or any professional service provider, if they're getting enough sleep, if they're able to like drink coffee and kind of go for a walk and have thoughts in the morning, if they're able to go to professional development conferences, read books, go on podcasts, listen to podcasts, get in tweet conversations. All of that is putting them in a position to just be more expert and more capable of bringing value to you. And so when you really think about what you want from a professional service provider or what you want to give as a professional service provider, um, the pricing truly has to be unmoored from the cost, which in of, of how many hours you spend. Um, you know, you could probably in some products sort of draw a very tight correlation between raw material costs and the value, but in professional services, it's not like that at all because, um, you know, it could take 20 minutes to share an insight that transforms someone's business, but it could take five years to come up with the skills and the ability to have that insight in 20 minutes. It's, it's a totally different metric. So I think in professional services firms, um, you, you want the value you are creating to drive then how you are thinking about the costs of the services you're providing, which means how much of your time are billable hours, how much of your time is spent on basic research into your field and on professional communication, et cetera. Yeah, I talk about this a lot when when writing customer proposals, which, you know, it's not going to surprise you. I always use three options and have the pricing be, um, you know, have a have a defined outcome. So this is the result that you're looking for. And I'm going to I could contribute to that desired outcome in three different ways. And here are the three ways. And this is me thinking when I'm drafting the proposal um, the 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 outcome is worth X dollars to this person, say one hundred thousand dollars. Now I'll come up with three prices based on what I'm estimating the value to them, what it's worth to them. And then I'll figure out what I'm going to do. Like, I don't think about what I'm going to do and then price it. Right. And then hopefully they'll, they'll find the price acceptable. I do it com 
completely in reverse, the exact opposite way, where if the project is worth $100,000 to them for some reason, to their business, then I'll give them, I'll come up with three prices, you know, maybe 10,000, 22,000 and 50,000. And then I'll say, if I had a budget of $10,000, how could I help them move this needle? And it might be a workshop, it might be um, some training materials, it might be um, some kind of innovation session, but it's going to be it's going to be some scope. My cost, the scope, is going to be something that is something that I decide after I know the price. Exactly. So, right. Yeah. So it's always profitable to both parties. If I'm if I'm roughly accurate with what it's worth to them, and then I pick a price, and then I decide what would I be super happy to do for ten thousand dollars. In other words, something that has a lot of profit to it, and and then here you go. There's one option, and but the idea of not first thinking about what you're going to do and then attaching a price tag to that and then hoping that the price is acceptable to the buyer, AKA it's less than what it's worth to them. The price is less than the value. Uh, it completely flips the whole thing on its head, which is the, to get back to like price determines cost. Exactly. And, I love how you put that. That was so much better than how I put it. That was, I'm going to, I'm going to steal that from now on. Please that do. was great. <laughs> All right. the, other, the other thing that you, that you said in there, um, is pricing is playful and I could not agree more with that. It's so much fun when you're doing it in that manner that I just described. It's much more fun. You can goof around with it. You can experiment and you can pick a price. You know, more broadly speaking, if you come up with a, a product or some kind of a productized service where you're not having a sales conversation with every client who buys, you can uh, experiment with different price points and see what effect that has on your the type of people who buy it uh, the number of people who buy it and you might find, you know, let's say you've got some sort of online course or seminar or something like that, or some kind of book package, then you could say, Oh, I'm going to charge a thousand dollars, you know, for six months, I'm going to post this online at a thousand dollars and see what happens. Maybe nobody buys it. Maybe only two people buy it, but that's actually more money than you made when it was only $10. It's super. That's why I went into pricing. It's so fascinating. The psychology around money is just, it's I love a blast. It. Yeah. And with well, digital it, tools, you can really fine tune it if you have the right product. If it's an online course or some other digital product where you, you know, eventually you get to the point where you know the lifetime value of a customer, like how many additional products am I likely to sell to them? You know, you can know to the you know fraction of a penny how much it costs to acquire each customer. And then you can really start, you've just got a lot of moves to make. It's not just, uh, that's not right for everybody. Not everyone's in a digital products business, but it it's, um, I find it just fun. That's something my dad really doesn't get. Like my, I love my dad and he's a great guy, but he's an artist and he thinks artists are creative and business people are boring, but rich. And which is, <laughs> um, and I, I have yet to be able to explain to him how much creativity and, and, and fun goes into business, um, strategizing and planning and, well, um, it feels like he's in a profession where you have to be chosen. You know, as as, a, as an actor, you go to auditions and you have to be chosen. And what we're talking about here is that you can put these ideas in, in the form of products and services out in the world and you do more of the choosing. Exactly. Right? That's a really good point. Yes, I love that point. Yeah. Yeah, my dad has said, I mean, he's 84. He's still working. And that means he's still going to auditions. He's 84. He's been an actor since 1963. And he's built up essentially nothing. Like his name gets him in the door because he's, you know, he's not famous, but he's well known in New York acting circles, theater circles, movie circles. His name gets him in the door. But then every job is like the first job. He has no, um, and he doesn't choose which door to go in. It's just that's a whole other process. And that's a really brutal, passive way to make a living. Um, yeah, I, I love what you just said, that you can pick which door you're knocking on and, and who's looking at you. Yeah. That's well, and when I was listening to both of you go back and forth, the thing that kind of struck me is some of what you're talking about feels like it takes some of the fear out of this. You know, I'm thinking about freelancers like Jonathan, like the one you talked about, where there's this fear about how am I going to price this? But when you start aligning your pricing with value and you, 
you know, walk through the services you're going to provide, I feel like it gives people confidence. It takes away some of that fear of putting themselves out there like with a big sign with their price tag on it, waiting for somebody to say, yes, you're worth it. Yeah, you pick yourself. Yeah. It's a, a total it Seth Godin thing. Yeah, and it is scary. Like, I don't want to underestimate that. And I've, I am a different person when I'm giving other people advice than when I'm trying to follow <laughs> my advice. And I, in my own business, struggle with like my internal desire to make every sale and make every deal happen. And I have to remind myself the fewer deals that work is probably the better. Um, but I also think that we don't yet have the right language. And I think shows like yours, the work the two of you do as consultants, hopefully my book, Seth Godin, Ron Baker, um, that we, if I can be immodest for us as a group, we are on the cutting edge of understanding a new economy. And, and a lot of people are still using an old language for that new economy. Like sometimes I like to think of, you know, imagine my, my, my great grandmother, left a farm in Plymouth, Massachusetts for, or Braintree, Massachusetts for Worcester, Mass to work in a factory. I don't know much about it, but I have to assume her parents were freaking out. These were people who had been farmers in America for hundreds of years. If they went back thousands of years, everyone had been a farmer. And suddenly their daughter's putting on pants, moving, you know, 50 miles away, which at the time might as well have been to the moon, and going to work in a giant building with heavy machines and what they couldn't understand it. And the idea that her great grandson would be on a podcast talking about pricing strategy, like no one could imagine the future <laughs> economy. And, and if you look at America between 1880 and the 1930s, we're developing this whole intellectual, legal, corporate structure we're developing branding, we're developing fixed prices, we're developing uh, supply chain and large corporations. We're also eliminating child labor and creating an understanding of the value of higher education. And um, there's just a whole bunch of tools that are coming into existence that make this more sustainable, make it more understandable, allow people to, to make this shift. And I think that is really important that 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 language has to develop so that people can make sense of these moves. Because if all you're thinking is, wait, if I say that, this customer will say no, and any customer saying no is deaf, then yeah, you're not going to do those things. But if you understand, oh, I have to think about a portfolio of customers, I have to think about um, an ongoing deepening of relationships with customers. Like it, it, it's a mental framework and it's there now. You like, we probably all could list the same books. It sounds like we have the same network of authors and, that we love, um, but it's not widely shared yet. And I don't think even more so it's internalized. Like I would say, I know this world extremely well and it's not in my guts yet. I'm still a boy of the 20th century trying to force my brain to adapt. And it's hard when the going gets tough and my business struggles, I have, I, my instincts are to go the 20th century commodity route. That's, I have to fight that, but that's what happens. Yeah. It's in great. I mean, I don't want, want to get in a riff about like, uh, you know, K through 12 education in the United States and, you know, pumping out factory workers to be cogs, but you know, blah, blah, blah. I could go on and on. Um, but I totally agree with that. I think that there needs to be, you know, it's just not, it's there but it's just not widely distributed yet. It's not clearly understood. And even folks who do it all the time, like, you know, people that you listed are still trying to come up with better ways to communicate it. So the light bulb goes on for people because it's such a foreign concept to, you know, 200 years of, of industrial business, industrial style uh, business or industrial economy. It's, wacky and hard to believe and it takes a long time to internalize and and then even longer to then articulate it to another person in in order to get them to actually take different actions it's uh, it's wild but I, I agree i feel like this is a i feel like it's going to be a survival strategy really for anybody who wants to run their own business absolutely well, or run their I own life their own economic life even if you work for other people well, and, and Adam, you, you published the book before COVID. And I'm just curious, have you seen 
um, in your interactions with your audience? Have you seen like a difference in how people are looking at this now? I, I do feel like COVID is accelerating these changes. And I think people are seeing that COVID is accelerating these changes, at least some people. I don't know if everyone, I just read, I don't know if you know Scott Galloway, I just read his new book about COVID, which basically says we got a, a decade of change in in since March, you know, that that COVID just accelerated a whole bunch of trends. And I agree with that. I think there is something about all of us sitting in our rooms through Zoom, talking to our customers or our service providers, you know, our bosses or whatever. There's just a clarity about that. It's like, um, like what we're not, you know, going out to restaurants and having, going to conferences. And like, it's like, I sit at my desk, I say words into a computer screen, I type things and either that adds value or it doesn't add value. And um, so that to me, just that simple, like kind of turning everything, making things a little more simple and away from the noise is very informative to people. But I also think (coughs) if the argument is, that you you can find your intimate customer all over the world. I think we just feel that more now. I, I graduated from college in 1992, and people were saying then, "Oh, it's not going to matter where you live. You could be on a farm in Kansas, and uh, you could have a job at a top Wall Street bank or whatever." And that world never came. I feel like I've been promised that, that it was five years away (laughs) since 1992. Well, I'm sitting here on a farm in Vermont and I'm running a company based in Brooklyn and it's going way better than anyone imagined it it, it would go. And I think we're all experiencing that. And that the next level of that is like, well, what if I'm providing services to just people spread around the world? What does that look like? So yeah, I think COVID, it's awful. It's terrible but it also is accelerating these changes and clarifying these changes, I think. Totally agree. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I can see we're up at, against the clock here, speaking of time, <laughs> time for money. Um, where can people go to find out more about you, your book, uh, what you're doing with the podcast business, all of these things? I mean, probably passioneconomy.com is the easiest, I would think. Um, and, uh, uh, you can get to the book and the podcast and lots of other things, um, uh, that way. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Adam Davidson. Um, I did want to mention like for Christmas this year, I feel like I want an hour and 25 minutes of a marketing consultant's time. Wouldn't that be a lovely gift? I'm just joking. <laughs> I always... <laughs> <laughs> I always think whenever I talk to hourly billing, people who understand the stupidity of hourly billing, I always think of that. Like, has anyone ever said, you know what, I'd love two hours of an accountant. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's great. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I th- Everyone, please buy the book, read the oh. book. It's, it's just full of great stories. Um, you get a, a tiny, tiny preview of some of those stories here today. Um, but it, it's, it's really it's, good. It, it's, it's like a Bible for yeah. people in this kind of business, in the passion economy, freelancing, consulting, buy the book, and most importantly, read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's like, it, takes, it takes all the theory and it puts stories to it, which makes it it makes it so much more powerful. Yeah, you're a great storyteller, Adam. Thank you so much. Oh, that's lovely to hear. Thank you. Thank you, guys. This was a blast. Anytime. Fabulous. Great. Cool. All right, folks. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>